experience community in such a way that we leave here a little differently than we came in. Lord, we do love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, you can have a seat, and the kiddos can head on out for their programming. Well, it's good to see you guys here tonight. Um, tonight I want to talk about two seemingly contradictory things that uh, can be held at the same time. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm attracted to that kind of stuff. Um, I like it when there's two things that seem like they shouldn't go together that do go together. I, I, uh, that's what I like about Sarah. She's a very attractive person but has very low standards in men. Two things that shouldn't go together but I very much appreciate. It's, uh, there's uh, one of my favorite, I guess you'd call it a, a, a love song, one of my favorite kind of ballads is a song called The Curse by a guy named Josh Ritter. And he's probably my favorite singer, songwriter. I was about to say, do I have a shirt on right now? It's like one of my three shirts, so I might have even had it on right now. Um, but he has this really beautiful song called The Curse, and it's this sweetly sung, melodic kind of love song uh, that just gets me. And the premise is uh, that there's a, an ancient mummy that wakes up and meets the person at the museum who's in charge of taking care of it. Those two things just don't seem like they should go together, Right? I mean, the, the, you know, Bridges Over Madison County and The Mummy don't really feel like a good mashup for a song, and yet something about this song is really compelling to me and really beautiful, and I love the imagery, and I love when things like that come together. I was, I was a big fan, and I'm not recommending this to our teenagers out there necessarily, but I was a big fan of the show Breaking Bad when it came out, and part of what I loved about that show was it was, it was always full of tension, and not just the cliffhanger of who done it and what's going to happen, but... Well, the, the main character was this guy who was this kind of sweet, mild-mannered uh, family man, high school science teacher uh, who gets this terrible diagnosis and then it suddenly kind of turns into, you know, Scarface over time. He's somehow a chemistry teacher and then a drug lord. He's somehow very mild-mannered and then very, uh, you know, violent at different points. And, and you see this kind of tension happening all the time and living in the same space. And it, uh, it was just compelling to me. I love that kind of stuff. Um, when there is a tension that defies easy categorization, when it shakes up life as normal, when someone or something or some piece of art seems to be two things at once and you're not quite sure how they're held together, I'm drawn to that. That's my favorite kind of stuff. If I, if I watch a show and everyone is exactly who they appear to be and it works out exactly as it should according to how those kinds of people are and everyone's the same in the begin as they, in the beginning as they are in the end, I'm really not interested. Uh, I, 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 I'm not drawn to it. Uh, I, I love this kind of stuff. And part of what I want to talk about today is very, really short gospel reading, uh, some of which you've definitely heard before and probably even heard me preach about before in the book of John, uh, is that it holds this kind of tension in it if, if you know what to listen for. And this moment in John in chapter 15 comes after Jesus has uh, really put his disciples through the ringer. I mean, he has uh, performed miracles in front of them, and he has rallied them to the cause. He has called them to be disciples, and they have given up their lives, and they have said yes to follow this rabbi. He has excited them, and he's inspired them, and he's awed them, he's shocked them, and he's scared them, right? Uh, he has convinced them to give up their lives to follow him, uh, that he is the, the, the son of God, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for for thousands of years, 
and then he turns and tells them things they can't understand, and he teaches them things that, that uh, confuse them and throw them off, and he uh, is, says, he's the, the, says he's God, and then he washes their feet and tells them to do the same. That's just a couple chapters before this, and then he asks the, him to, them to follow him, and then he tells them that they're going to betray him and that he's going to be killed. Right? And, and I know we tend to a lot of times pick on the disciples a little bit because they, they come off a little bit dumb in Scripture because they're constantly asking the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing and not getting it. But if you just take a moment and think about where they're coming from, it's a lot. It's a lot to ask of the disciples. Jesus uh, is throwing all kinds of things at them that don't make any sense to them, uh, that don't work together. A lot of tension exists there. Jesus does not make it easy on his disciples. And when we get to this portion of John, he's, he's beginning to have these final teachings, these final things he's trying to convince them of and, and convict them of. That he's trying to kind of wrap up his teaching ministry with them before he goes into his passion. And you get to this portion of John, and as he's trying to tie it up, he's trying to give them some simple truths. And, and if you really look closely here, uh, he teaches a couple things that are not unusual in and of themselves, but they don't usually go together. There's this kind of incongruency that, that I'm attracted to and I really like. And you may not notice it when we first read it, but there's two things that are happening here that are fairly common, but they don't usually go together. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Let's read again the passage. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 says this. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now, if you ask any sane person what these verses are about, they will tell you love, right? Uh, it is mentioned uh, four times in five verses, twice is named a command. In fact, it's mentioned seven times if you include the word friends, which is uh, basically based, is based on a Greek word phileo, uh, which is another word for love. There's four Greek words for love, and that's one of them. In fact, it might literally be better to use loved ones instead of friends here. It is very much about love and about uh, sacrificial friendship uh, that is based in love. But it is within this strange tension that God uh, incarnate puts before us. Because Jesus makes two claims here that are not unheard of. In fact, they're uh, relatively common in, in this time and age uh, when this is written. But they rarely, if ever, go together. I think it gets at the heart of what is so difficult for the disciples to wrap their mind around in regards to Jesus. First, he claims to be God's son. Second, he calls us friends. The kind of friends that he will lay his life down for. So let's look at those two things for a moment. First, again, let's look at Jesus calling the disciples, calling us friends. Again, this term is based on a Greek word for love, phileo, right? Um, and in the Gospel of John, he basically only uses two different words, uh, Greek words for love. There's four, and you know most most gospels will kind of distinguish certain kinds of love depending if it's friendship or God's uh, like fatherly unconditional love, agape or eros or, or storge or whatever. But 
Gospel of John, as with everything else, does things a little differently. In the Gospel of John, this word phileo and uh, the word uh, agape are kind of used interchangeably. The divine loves are kind of used interchangeably. And Jesus calls us his friends and, and, and calls a friend someone who will lay down their life for someone else. And of course, we know what's going to happen with Jesus. We know the story of the cross. We know the passion narrative. We're already kind of hearing, uh, knowing what the repercussions are for this. But understood that, uh, understand that this is not typically what we think about as a friend, right? It's certainly not a Facebook kind of friend, which is not even someone you may like. Uh, and it isn't even an acquaintance or someone that you have generally positive feelings about or even like seeing on occasion in person if you have to, and they're wearing a mask. This is something more deep and more profound than that. It's the if this is the kind of friend that's the family you choose, the friend in whom you, uh, someone for whom you would be willing to sacrifice for, to lay down your life for, right? And this high sense of phileo, of friendship, is honestly not unique to Jesus. It fits with Jesus, but it's not, he's not the first person to teach about this. Both Plato and Aristotle, who are far more well-known teachers and precede Jesus by several hundred years, talked about this kind of friendship and specifically named the kind of friendship where someone lays down their life for someone else as the noble ideal. This is not something that's necessarily unique to Jesus to talk about this. Second thing Jesus says is also not very unique to him, although we only think about Jesus when we hear it. Again, secondly, Jesus claims to be the son of God. That is, God is my father, right? Now, when you hear son of God, as uh, someone who lives in a Judeo-Christian culture and Judeo-Christian world who has been influenced by the Bible and Judeo-Christian teachings, um, you immediately think of Jesus. We think of re a religious claim made by Jesus. But that obviously was not the case then. He's just now saying this. And it was not unheard of outside of religious circles um, to hear this claim. You know, the mixing of deity and humanity was a part of lots of legends and lots of mythologies. In fact, if, if you were sitting originally when Jesus said the, the phrase son of God, what you would have thought of was Caesar. This was a term that was used a lot for Caesar. It's part of the myth of who Caesar was. Caesar was part God and part human. We automatically think Jesus. They automatically would have thought the ruler of Rome when you said God. It was as political as it was spiritual. In fact, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, you would have found in, uh, inscriptions all over in Roman territories that would have read something about Emperor Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of God. Right? Kind of religious mythology and politics and all those things all came together in this person, the one who's above and beyond everyone else. It's the highest conceivable position to hold in the ancient world. It is the king of kings, if you will. And because it is the king of kings, because it is the pinnacle of all things to be the son of God, this is who Caesar is, generally by definition, it is also to be friendless. I mean, on the one hand, everybody is Caesar's friend, right? Because you want to stay on Caesar's good side. In fact, when you read through the Passion narrative, when Pilate is, starting, is trying to decide whether or not to hand Jesus over to be killed or to let him go free, one of the things that changes his mind or gets him to do what uh, the crowd wants is they say basically you're not going to be a friend of Caesar if you don't do what we want. So everyone is trying to be a friend of Caesar 
But if friendship is defined by uh, the kind of love that lays itself down for another, even if everyone is quote-unquote Caesar's friend, Caesar is friend to no one. By definition, all of us are called to lay down our lives for Caesar, but Caesar, by virtue of being at the very top of the pyramid, by being the son of God, by being the, the uh, uh, ultimate in humanity, Caesar, by definition, will not lay down his life for anybody. He's the last one to go. To be son of God and to be friend were a contradiction in terms. Those two things did not go together. Caesar was a friend to no one. Yet Jesus holds this tension. And you can see how little this makes sense to disciples based on the way they react throughout his ministry, right? When Peter answers the questions correctly and Jesus says, you are my rock, you are the rock on which I will build my church, and Peter must be feeling pretty good about himself. And then, himself. And then a few verses later, he tells all his disciples, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die, and Peter rebukes him. Peter rebukes him. If you're the son of God, you, you don't die for anyone. We die for you. You don't die for us. Right? And that's when Jesus changed his name from rock to Satan which is a, a real downgrade in nicknames. Just a few chapters, just a little bit earlier in John, when he takes the servant's towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet, they say, no, never. You will not wash my feet. I can serve you, but you can't serve me. You are the son of God. You are at the top of the pyramid, right? There, we are all below you. I can be your friend. You can't be mine. They can't conceive of holding these two tensions together. It's the giant stumbling block for the disciples. To claim both of these things at the same time is to invert the entire way we know, we know the world works. Right? The world is this triangle, it is this pyramid, where the pinnacle exists by standing on top of those below them. And this increasingly wider swaths of people with increasingly less value to the system until you get to the servants and the slaves at the bottom. This is how all the systems work. To one degree or another, as uglier or prettier versions of it, this is the kingdoms of the world. This is how they're structured. Every kingdom of the world is set up that way, as is most every corporation you've ever heard of and a good chunk of our churches, if we're honest. We understand it. This is just the water we swim in. This is how the world works. This is the only way we know how to do things, right? The show Undercover Boss wouldn't work as a premise if we believed that the president of the gigantic company might choose to stay on as the custodian once the camera's left. One is president in part because one does not want to clean toilets anymore. But we serve a God whose hands are as dirty as ours, a son of God who is our friend. We claim a kingdom in which the first mover of all things, the creator of the entire universe, the first mover of all things has chosen to be last. As it says in Philippians 2, one of the first hymns of the church did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. 
The creator of the universe is scrubbing the stink off of our feet and asking us to do the same for each other. And we don't know how to live with that tension. It's so foreign to us. It, it doesn't, I don't think it makes sense to us. And I think if you look at half of what gives Christianity a bad name out there, it's trying to claim Jesus and leave out this whole other part. I want the Jesus thing. I want to be a friend to the one in charge. I, I, I don't want to be scrubbing anyone's feet. Have you ever been a part of a foot washing like service? It's like my deepest fear in a worship service. And I believe, I love that story. It's profoundly meaningful. If I told you we were doing a foot washing service here next week, most of you would find a good excuse to not be here. And it's not just because you're grossed out by other people's feet, although you would definitely be grossed out by mine. It is profoundly uncomfortable. Maybe I can, maybe I can get myself to the point where I feel okay washing someone else's feet, but letting someone else wash mine... I want the hierarchy and Jesus. I want to be on the winning team and I want to keep the hierarchy. I just want to be in a good spot in that hierarchy. Right? I saw this week that there's a, there's a uh, GoFundMe or some kind of you know, fundraising thing right now to start a new Christian dating website. Did you all see this? The name of the Christian was, I thought it was, a, I thought it was a joke. I was like, this is awesome. Like I was waiting for Borat to jump out or something. They're literally calling it Dominion, which in light of the whole voting machine thing seems like a bad marketing decision. But, and to me, and the whole thing is going to be like, we want Christians to get on this site for dating as long as both the men and women understand that women have to listen to men and it's the whole patriarchy kind of little stuff that gets associated with Christianity, which is a whole other sermon or two at some point. I want Jesus, but I want the hierarchy. One of our state legislators uh, this week went into a whole thing and they had this big prayer service and some of the stuff I read about it and everything I read about it is like, we got to get more of our folks in charge. We've got to elect our kind of people. The end times are coming is one of the things that's, you know, that's never been said before. And everyone's always right. End times are coming and we've got to get our people in charge. I want Jesus, but I want the hierarchy. I want to be in charge. I want to move my way up. The, want, and Jesus does not allow for those things. What is so profoundly difficult about Jesus is he says he is the son of God and he is our friend. He is the creator of all things and he is washing our feet. Jesus claims to be both the pinnacle and the least, to be the lion of Judah who chooses to be a sacrificial lamb, the son of God who has come to serve and not be served, the first who chooses to be the last. God who voluntarily sacrifices. God and love. And then commands us to do the same. I don't blame the disciples for shaking their heads. I don't blame the disciples for being confused. I don't blame them for running for the hills. 
when Jesus ends up on the cross. If that idea doesn't disturb you at least a little bit, I'm not sure you're paying attention. We're not here to talk about how to be kind of just nice people in the world as it is. We're here to call into question the entire structure and to build something different. This is a truth I think we avoid at all costs. And this is why Jesus is hitting this point so hard right now for his disciples. And as disturbed as they are, and as much as they can't wrap their minds around it, there's so much encouragement in these verses, right? He's telling them there's nothing left to earn. You've been chosen. There's no more special knowledge to attain. I've already told you everything you need to know. There's nothing to achieve. You're already qualified to serve. There's only this call to be the kind of leader, the kind of lover, the kind of friend that God has been to us. It's always only been about that. To be the kind of people who willingly give away whatever privilege and power they possess for the ones they call friends. Right? What a friend we have in Jesus. Can we hold within ourselves that same tension? Because if you're anything like me, you're trying to choose one and not have to hold the other. And we are told that in humbling ourselves is when we are lifted up. We are told that abundance is found in holding these two things together. And following the God who is love. Let's pray.